If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we have broken up uh, this paragraph and are sort of pausing a bit over the idea of assurance of salvation and how the New Testament encourages you to seek it and how it would tell you to be confident that you have it. Uh, and that's particularly what's going on in our, our text for this morning. Um, just before I read that, I will uh, tell you that our, our own Gordon Carlson has been moved over to hospice care at uh, Ava House. And um, he is uh, certainly in his last days, but he is very capable right now of receiving visitors. He, uh, in fact, would would love to see um, some of you. He's in room 16, um, and so if you have the time, you could stop by and uh, see uh, Gordy. He's got quite a few things going on inside of him. From what I understand, though, is his status could change very quickly. He's got a a tumor right by the valve of his heart. And I think their, their sense is that tumor will eventually affect that valve and then things will happen very quickly, uh, is I think what they sort of expect. Uh, but I had, uh, I had a wonderful uh, visit with him um, just the other day. And we closed that visit by uh, reading our text for this morning. And uh, the text that we're about to read, I'll tell you that he gave, it gave Gordon uh, great encouragement uh, for he could recognize his own experience uh, in these these words. You have to do a little review because our text assumes verses 5 through 8. Uh, But let's stand together and I'll read verses um, 9 through 10. Speaking of the qualities back in uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted as to be blind, having forgotten that he has cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your servant, Gordon Carlson, and for the role that he has played in this church for many decades, many decades. And Lord, we thank you that he is among your own, among those, as Peter says, who will never fall. Lord, it is good to give thanks to you to sing praises to your name, 
O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And this is what we have been doing this morning, declaring your faithfulness in songs, in hymns, with instruments. For you have made us glad to know you by means of the work that you have performed within us. As Pastor Don read earlier, you have caused us to know the path of life. And we thank you that you have, at least those whom you have, should be filled with thanks and praise that you have caused us to know the path of life. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are exceedingly deep. And we are surrounded by people who pay no attention to your thoughts at all. And they have all of the reputation for wisdom in our culture. They're known as cutting-edge people. They are the trendsetters of our age. But the psalmist thinks of them so differently in Psalm 92. For he says, it's the stupid man who cannot know. And it's the fool who doesn't understand how deep your thoughts are. And the wicked don't realize at all that they merely sprout like grass and live for a very short period of time. And then they are gone. And their destruction outside of Christ is forever. But your people, O Lord, your people are with you on high forever. Father, we we do thank you and praise you for who you are, for walking with us in the midst of all of the places that you've called us, and sometimes they're difficult challenging, disappointing, even discouraging. But in the midst of them all, you assure us that as your people, we can flourish. We can walk with you. We can find ourselves planted in your house forever with the destiny of a new heaven and a new earth as our ultimate future. For we have come to know you through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, and are attached to you forever in him. We thank you that it's true in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Back to that text for a moment that Don read from... Psalm 16, verse 11. 
all that stuff about the path of life. And pleasures forevermore. The pleasures of your days forever. That'd be a really wooden rendering of what's in the Hebrew text there. The pleasures of your days forever. Now that informs our title for the morning message. So what do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? Well, the psalmist would say, well, only pleasures of your days forever. That's what you would have to lose. Jesus' answer to that question is, if anything, even more striking. It's repeated in the Gospels. The synoptics, all, all three of them. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So what do you got to lose? Well, your everlasting soul. The first thing to clarify here is by soul, in, Matthew, in, in, in Mark, he, he doesn't mean the immaterial aspect of you versus your body. Because most of eternity for the believer is lived in their body. It's a resurrection eternity. Uh, so to forfeit your soul is really a way of saying to forfeit your life, to forfeit your spiritual life. So what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world for 70 years, but at the cost of his everlasting resurrection opportunity? Because that's what you have to lose in New Testament terms. That's how grand and great the thing is that they have to lose. And people trade it away for a lot less than the whole world. They trade it away for a few years of political prominence. They traded away for acceptance in a peer group that, again, only lasts a few years. And Jesus is asking us to think about what we're doing. What are you doing? What are you doing? Think about it. Calculate it. What does it profit a man? Even if you were to gain the whole world and you're all trading it for a lot less than that, at the forfeit of your own soul. 
remember 35 years ago, sitting out back a little country church down in Iowa and reading a, a book by the Puritan Richard Baxter. As a staff right now, we're reading a book by Richard Baxter, the Reformed uh, Pastor. Uh, that's one of two books of his that remain relatively widely read in the Christian church for 400 years since he wrote them. The other one, uh, and there's only one other one, that really has remained widely read, and it's called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And near the end of the third chapter in that book, Baxter writes this. I've quoted some of it to you before. He says, Study frequently, study thoroughly, this one word, eternity. What? To live and never die? To rejoice and ever rejoice? Oh, happy souls in hell, if they should escape after a million ages... O miserable saints in heaven, if they should be dispossessed of heaven after the age of a million worlds, this word, eternity, carries the perfection of the torment of the lost and of the glory of the people of God. Oh, that the sinner would study this one word. I think it would startle him out of his deadly sleep. Oh, that the sinner would study this one word. Eternity. Study continuously. Study thoroughly. This one word. Now, I'll tell you, we live, we live in a culture that has that advice turned on its head. Absolutely turned on its head. Here's our cultural message. Study continuously. Study thoroughly. To avoid at all costs this one word. Eternity. We never mention it. We never mention it. No issue gets discussed in light of eternity. None. Ever. We don't go there. We don't go within miles of it. We talk about the present moment. We talk about being on the right side of history endlessly. But we never... We never talk in any serious way as a culture about eternity when it's at the heart of the very thing everybody's got to lose. What do you got to lose? Well, your everlasting life, your everlasting soul. Peter's with Jesus on this, absolutely with Jesus on this. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And it's a rhetorical question that answers itself. Nothing. 
Complete loss. In our text for this morning, Peter's right there with him. For whoever lacks these qualities, back in verses 5 to 7, whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted so as to be blind, having forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you are doing these things, is literally what he says, if you are doing these things, these things back in verses 5 to 7, you will never fall. State our thesis for this morning this way. We are warned that the obedience of faith is essential to the assurance of salvation. We are warned, and we need to be warned. We are warned that the obedience of faith is essential to the assurance of salvation. Because in America, often, we, we, we talk about the assurance of salvation like you can safely get there uh, with something like the spiritual times tables. A plus B is C. X times Y equals this. There it is. Simple. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to think about. Peter doesn't talk that way. Jesus doesn't talk that way. Paul doesn't talk that way. Americans talk that way. American evangelicalism talks that way. The biblical authors simply don't talk that way on the whole. They don't. They don't. We'll see it in this text. Peter certainly doesn't talk that way. Three questions we'll pose to these two verses. Number one. What if we don't worry about all this inward transformation stuff? Right? All this inward transformation, this navel-gazing. What if you just blow that aside? Forget about all that stuff. Looking inwardly, you know, like you're a Roman Catholic mystic or something. No, 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 you don't need that. Good grief. But Peter comes to you and says, you know that stuff I said to you back in verses 5 to 7? Let me warn you. Here it is. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he's been cleansed from his former sins. See, it's a spiritual insider's question. What if we don't worry about all of this inward stuff? What if you just reason, well, I've accepted Jesus into my heart and once saved, always saved? Bingo. Or if you have another tradition, well, I was baptized. Once you've been baptized, been to many funerals where everybody's been assured. Yeah, so-and-so didn't pay much attention to Jesus, but baptized. Off to heaven they go, nothing to worry about. Peter says, wow, but but if you lack these qualities, here's what he's talking about, back in verses 5 to 7. Let your faith 
bring about virtue, and virtue bring about knowledge, and knowledge bring about self-control, and self-control bring about steadfastness, and steadfastness bring about godliness, and godliness bring about brotherly affection, and brotherly brotherly affection bring about love. Those are the qualities. But if these, if you're lacking this, there's none of this about you. None of this about you. And you're still confident. Well, that's, you're confident because you're blind. You're confident because you're, you're short-sighted. Um, very literally, what he wrote is, for he who lacks these qualities is blind being short-sighted. Uh, that last little phrase is what defines what he means by blindness. You're not stole clothes. It's not that you don't see anything at all. If you lack these qualities, you're blind. What do you mean by blind? I mean being short-sighted, being spiritually short-sighted. You can't see anything when you look out at any distance. So when you look back, it's as if you've forgotten all about what a glorious thing it is to be forgiven and you start to live like it's really not that big of a deal because you're short-sighted. You're blind. You forget all about it. That's what he says. Here's how Jesus gave the warning about that. He goes, well, I'm warning you. Warning me of what? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. That is, I had a profession of faith. I had the baptism. I was a church person. Lord, you know me. And at the end of that same verse in Matthew 7, 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Short-sighted. Short-sighted. The margin of the uh, New Testament that I use, there's a cross-reference here to Deuteronomy 28.28. Deuteronomy 28 is the blessing and curse chapter in the book of Deuteronomy about what will happen if the Israelites do not live out the obedience of faith. And among the curses is is verse 28, and here's what it says. Uh, The key word here that ties it, why why it's in the cross-reference section for our text is the word blindness. But the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. He'll strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And what that meant for them is they became indistinguishable from Canaanites, pretty much. What it means for us is we become indistinguishable from Americans, the average American. We believe everything the average American believes. We have all the same outlook as the average American has. Because we're blind. Uh, We're blind. Call the worship text from 1 John. 1 John 
9 through 11 was read, but let me just reread to you verse 11. The one hating his brother is in the darkness. And in the darkness he walks. Now here's the key lines. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The darkness has blinded his eyes. All kinds of professing Christians, they're not very worried about what's in the Ten Commandments anymore. I had all that law stuff. We don't consider the Ten Commandments all that virtuous. Now, what the Disney Corporation thinks, no, now there you're on to something. What's cutting, cutting edge? You sort, of, you sort of like you get your moral framework from Disney uh, and the rest of corporate America. It's a good place to go. They'll kind of tell you uh, what sort of moral signals you need to send. They refer to it as virtue signaling. What sort of virtue signals you need to give. If you want to be considered a moral person by the average American. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Well, then they'll tell you. Just take these positions on these issues and you'll be good. You'll be good. Millions of people take that. Millions of professing Christians are there right now. People in church right now. The stuff in the Ten Commandments doesn't weigh a thing to them. The stuff that Disney recommends, oh boy, yeah. Cutting edge. How can that be? Because the darkness has blinded their eyes. They're short-sighted. Can't see it. Madness. Spiritual madness. Secondly, how important is assurance of salvation? How important is it? Um, How seriously should you take it? Well, Peter tells us what he thinks in verse 10. So he's warned us in verse 9. Now notice the key word here. Therefore. There's a big warning in verse 9, verse 10. Therefore, given how high the stakes are, given how, da- how much danger there is that you find yourself blind, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's the ESV. The King James Version is more helpful here, though it's a clunkier, which is why none of the other uh, translations include. But the King James actually translates just an extra word that's in the Greek text that ramps up the contrast more. So here's how the King James put it. Therefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Therefore, in contrast to what I just said in verse 9, you make every effort to make your calling and election 
sure. You be diligent. Be diligent in contrast to this blindness to make your calling and election sure. And how do you do that? Well, you you go back and you make sure that this kind of thing is going on in your life. That by means of your faith, there is virtue. And by means of your virtue, there is the knowledge of God. And by means of the knowledge of God, there's self-control. And by means of the self-control, there is steadfastness. And by means of the steadfastness, you becoming godly. And by means of godliness, you becoming one who loves the brothers. And by means of loving the brothers, you ultimately love God. Faith, it begins in faith, ends in love. Be sure that's you. Remember, Paul says the same thing. We, we looked at it several weeks in a row now. Right? Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision isn't anything. Uncircumcision isn't anything. What matters? Faith working itself out in love. He says exactly the same thing here with more blanks filled in. By means of faith, you end up with the love of God. With a whole bunch of stuff that goes along with it. But he's telling us, you be diligent to be sure that that kind of thing is going on inside of you. Now, it's a big trick here because, wow, but oh, man, I tell we go. I could hear the flushing sound and the Reformation just went down the toilet. Uh, you know, justification by faith apart from works of the law. And there you are, pastor. Law, 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 law. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. Well, that would be a fairly superficial uh, understanding of Reformation doctrine, but it's a good point to bring up at this point. Because Peter's argument is particular, and it's a little tricky in one sense. In one sense. I remember uh, when uh, first married, I worked in a factory, and we, so you go to you do your factory work and then come home, and Shirley and I would do a few things together. And then, but, always, but then I started right away, to, uh, always before I went to bed, I started my theological reading plan. And in those days, one of the, one of the people that I read uh, quite a bit of, uh, who was kind of a, a popular uh, writer in the 1970s, particularly uh, for uh, theological things, uh, was a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And, uh, and that year I read Francis Schaeffer's uh, little book, True spirituality, true spirituality. And from him, I learned this little phrase that's popular in, uh, in Reformed, uh, think, not overly popular, but they, but they use it. I ran across, it made me think of this as I ran across it in a book by uh, John Frame this last week. It's a little phrase, active passivity. Active passivity, right? Sounds like a little paradoxical, like, ooh, Active passivity. Well, that's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about active passivity. How so? What do you mean? I mean this. 
The passivity part, the passivity part is calling and election. If you're among God's people, you know what you did to become among God's people? Nothing. Zip. Zero. 100% God. God. Paul would put it this way, did put it this way. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What did you have before the foundation of the world to recommend yourself? You didn't exist. You were, in other words, completely passive in this part of it. Completely passive. Completely. Couldn't be more passive. That's what he means by the passive part. That's what he means by the passivity part of this. Your calling and election. Um, However, how do you make that sure? Well, you can't earn it because you're passive in it. You don't earn it. And that's what the Reformation is all about. You don't earn this status. That's justification by faith apart from works of the law. You don't earn your standing with God. Peter would agree with that. But what Peter says is, though you don't earn it, you would be really wise to evidence it. You would be really, really wise to be diligent, to make sure that you evidence that you have this thing. That's the activity part, active passivity. So here, they're both right there, for instance, in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We had nothing to do with that. But here's the purpose clause. In order that, in order that, this isn't Paul's usual sort of purpose clause. This is a, a different one, but all the grammarians agree that it's the same idea. It's a little infinitive verb here. In order that, to this end... And then he says this, that we should be holy and blameless. Oh, we're active in that. That's an active pursuit. He chose us in order that we should be seeking all our lives long to be holy and blameless before him. Peter referred to us in this context, right? Chapter 1, verse 4. We are partakers of the divine nature. And we said, well, I think what he means by that is we are the partakers of the fulfillment of new covenant promises. The most easily attached to the notion of this passivity is the one Jesus refers to in John 3, when he tells Nicodemus, got to be born again. What's he got in the back of his mind? Ezekiel 36. 
25 to 28, but verse 27 in particular. And I will put my spirit within you. And he will cause you to walk in my ways. If you have no evidence of walking in his ways, then you have no evidence that the spirit is actually inside of you. Because where he is, he causes people to walk in his ways. That's what he does. That's what he does. And so what Peter's asking you to do is looking for evidence of the Spirit. Oh, it's nice to claim that you have the Spirit inside of you, but is there any evidence about your life that you have the Spirit inside of you? You get the Spirit passively, but do you have any evidence that he's there? Again, in the text that Don read this morning from Psalm 16, verse 11 opens with a a causative verb. He causes you to know the path of life. You're passive in that. But once you have that knowledge, there better be some evidence that you have it. Do you know the path of life? Do you listen to Peter guide you down the path of life? He said, therefore, brothers, you better be diligent to confirm your calling and election. You better have the activity that confirms the passivity of your call and election. Active passivity. Thirdly, So what is a person assured of in regard to assurance of salvation? Last little phrase. For as long as you are practicing these things, you will never stumble. These things is the same again. It's that same list back in verses 5 to 7. That's what he's talking about. As long as you are doing, and that's literally, the he uses the main Greek word more often than any other in the New Testament, translated doing, that's what he uses here. Those who are doing these things will never stumble. They will never stumble. By stumbling means they won't fall away from the faith. Not that they won't stumble into sin, that they won't have trouble. They'll have all of that all the time. But they will not ultimately fall away from the faith. They will never ultimately fall away from the faith. They will never hear Jesus say, Depart from me, I never knew you. No, those who are practicing these things, these are doing these things. Um... Never. Now again, he's not talking about earning this status. No, 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 no. This is nothing to do with earning this. You're not earning this. You're not trying to calculate whether you've been good enough to have everlasting life. What you're, what you're asking is, is there evidence that I am this person that I've shared in the divine nature, that I'm among the elect, that I am called of God. Is there evidence? 
that that's me. And as I say, Paul says you want that evidence too. Shows us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Is there any, any desire in me to be holy and blameless? Do I seek in any meaningful way to be holy and blameless? Or am I completely comfortable with my sins that, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the Lord to give me the right desires. He hasn't given to me yet, so I don't worry about it. I just let go and let God. That's what I do. And Peter's just giving a, a different direction. And as I say, he's with Paul on this, becoming holy and blameless before him in love and, and Peter says, well, I can tell you, here's, here's how you do that by means, of your, by means of your faith, moral excellence. And by means of your moral excellence, knowledge. By means of your knowledge, self-control. And by means of your self-control, patience or steadfastness. By means of your patience or steadfastness, godliness, fear of the Lord, taking God seriously by means of taking God seriously. Therefore, you love those who created in his image, particularly the redeemed, the brothers. And ultimately, love for God, which Jesus says is the chief end of all the law. You living as a child of God. What do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? A lot. A lot. Carol King wrote it in 1971. A little line in her, her most famous song of all. She didn't make it famous herself. It's made famous by Mr. James Taylor. Right? In ballad, You've Got a Friend from 1971. Where James Taylor sang and Carol King wrote, she said, people can be so cold. They'll hurt you they'll desert you. Well, they'll take your soul if you let them. Ah, but don't you let them. There's a whole culture that is designed now to be cold toward the Christian faith. Cold toward Christian spirituality. Cold toward every commitment that a Christian is supposed to have. And they'll take your soul if you let them. And Peter goes beyond the simple statement, but don't let them to this, and here's how not to let them. Verse 
Therefore, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For those doing these things will never stumble. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you'd enable us to hear your voice in the midst of our own confusing times where we find ourselves surrounded by the most sophisticated messaging that anybody who has ever walked the face of the earth has faced through our technologies, through our times and places, through the kind of cultural markers that are in place, fixed, that mean to take our souls. Oh, Lord, by your grace, by your electing grace, by your call, by your spirit, by having made us partakers of the divine nature, enable us to heed Peter's warning and invitation. And to live lives consciously seeking to make our calling and election sure. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.